You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Morning affirmations. You are an idiot. <laughs> There's only up from here. <laughs> it um, really can't get much worse than this. <laughs> that that would actually be for some people that would work. Some days that that works for me. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I get so stressed when I know I have to wake up for something. Like listeners, we are recording in the morning. If you can't tell about us talking mm. about our morning mm. affirmations, but mm-hmm. um, I was like, okay, I'm gonna set my alarm for seven. Between like six and seven, I like wake up constantly and check my phone. And then I actually took a screenshot because I woke up at 6.59 and checked my phone and turned my alarm off because I didn't want to wake Alex up. But it's like I, it's like my brain is so aware that I need to get up. And it's like, I mean, I get up, my alarm goes off at like 7.30 normally. So it's not anything like that, that much earlier. But Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. just the idea that I'm like, I cannot miss this. Like if I sleep through this, I miss the recording. And then, you know. Oh, I'm up yeah, all I, had a, I had a stress dream this morning that I had missed the recording. Um, yeah, it's, it is what it is. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. You, you're just constantly tossing and turning. It's the same way, like, like right, if you have like, to get up early to like catch a flight or something, mm-hmm. that's when I usually experience it the most. I used to experience it for something like this, but na- Matt taught me a trick about how to turn off your alarm like mm-hmm. quickly with your phone without having to like open your eyes which has been bad news bears. And I will not, I don't know if you know this trick, so I'm not going to impart the knowledge to you because it has ruined me. When I say that it has ruined me, I mean it has ruined me. I used to set three alarms and usually by the third alarm, I would get up and Mm -hmm. whatever. You can judge me for the three alarms if you want to. But the point is after the third alarm, I would get up. I would get up. Now I set two alarms and I snooze them both in flux with each oh other. So it's like gosh. every nine minutes I have an alarm going off. And I just keep, I keep snoozing. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it because it ruined me. It truly ruined me. And I look at Matt sometimes. He's like, I'm so sorry that I taught you how to do that. I used to never hit snooze because I was like, what's the point? If I can't enjoy going back to sleep, then what's the point? And then I started doing it. And mm-hmm. it's bad. It's a slippery slope. I was like, man, I used to be so like... It wasn't even disciplined. It was purely just the, like, I'm not going to sleep if I can't enjoy it. That's why I don't like taking a nap unless I have like three hours blocked out. I agree. I don't take naps either. And I, same, I used to not be able to snooze because I'd be like, well, the anxiety, like, no, mm-hmm. I, I'm already, it's, I'm already awake. Let me just like commit to this being awake. It's miserable, but I'm going to do it. And also like, yeah, if I can't, if I know, if I hit snooze and go back to sleep and I know that I have to wake up in, let's say 30 minutes. I'm not going to sleep between then and the 30 minutes, and why bother? Yeah. It's not Um, like that anymore, though. I do hit snooze, and it's miserable. And you pay for it. Yeah. I do. Well, um, yeah, good morning, everyone. (laughs) Hopefully. Good good morning. morning. Um, You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. I'm Grace Topinka. And I'm Chelsea Rowan, your favorite weekly podword crosscast. Um... I actually, I have a bone to pick with Grace. With me? I have a bone. Mm. I've, got, I've got a bone. Tell me. Give me your bone. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So, we watched a movie together on Halloween. Uh-huh. We watched My Best Friend's Exorcism. Is that what it was called? Yes. I Ooh, recall. It wasn't scary. Yeah, it wasn't scary. I don't think at all, really. It was, you know, campy. Not camp- I don't know. It was like... 
It's kind of Jennifer's body-esque. Yeah. Yeah, there are some moments where you could have been jump-scared or whatever, but it wasn't too bad, which is great for me. But here's the catch. Here's mm. the rub, listeners. Not this, le- this night that just woke me into this morning, but the previous night that woke me into yesterday's morning. I had the worst nightmare of my life about oh. demonic possession. And I, it was like in this house that we were in, and this guy went like, he was skateboarding around the house, and we were like, don't go upstairs. And he went upstairs, and he, we heard this horrible crash, and like, screaming and then a demonic voice just like booming and like shaking the entire earth and house and like you could hear that the guy upstairs was killed and it was just or possessed and Mm -hmm. i was like grace we have to get here she's like well we could just sleep in the family room instead we don't have to sleep upstairs and i was like this effing bitch i swear to god first of all even though i love scary movies i would never be caught dead like sleeping in a place where I think there's like a demonic possession, unless it was, yeah. you know, like a historically haunted place or whatever. But yeah. And I mean, honestly, the film wasn't scary. Like, I'm just surprised that I had that dream because I wasn't scared by the film. I genuinely enjoyed watching it. But yeah. But, yeah. That's why Alex doesn't like to watch scary movies because she gets really bad nightmares. I, for all my sleep anxieties, I don't really get, or I don't remember my nightmares. So, and they're not like horror movie related. So I'm not too yeah. affected. To be fair, most of my dream, my my nightmares, if you will, quote unquote, are actually stress dreams. Yeah, and they're more about like real life things. Like we have to get out of the house and get on the road to get to the cottage on time. And nobody wants to leave. And I'm have, like, we have to go. Or I'm naked in front of an apartment full of people. Yeah. I have home invasion stuff. That's like my usual Ooh, nightmare type thing stuff. or something weird like that. Anyway, um, sorry, but what can That's do? crazy. Let's let's move on. Shall we get into our Polapalooza? Yes, let me pull her on up. Pull her up. Um, our pull blues was based on last week's, two weeks ago, topic, last episode topic. So if you want to participate in them, you should follow us on Twitter, at the Good Eve Girls. Ooh. But we asked, because I did a topic on incense, um, what kind of scent do you lean towards? And this is the four categories that the internet says, like, scent is divided into. So I didn't make okay. these up. But the choices okay. were floral. Herbs and spices, which is kind of like vanilla, like chili, warm stuff, kind of. And then woodsy, mm-hmm. which is like the musk, amber moss, Ooh. um, mm-hmm. and then fresh, like fresh and clean. Mm-hmm. Um, like linen. Yes. So the two lowest scores they tied for last were floral and herbs and spices. Mm. In second place was fresh with 30% of the vote. Mm. And then 50% of the vote, woodsy. Ooh, I would vote Woodsy for sure, for sure. Me too. Um, I'm I'm definitely a musky gal. And when I'm it comes mus- to my I like sense, the, my home I sense. I like the musk, yeah. I like and I have been on like a cinnamon kick right now, though, just because of the, the season. Sometimes the herbs and spices, like vanilla, I actually think amber might ca- have counted under herbs and spices. Mm. Um, but I do like fresh sometimes, too. Depends. Yeah. Depends what, you know, what time of year it is, but I almost never get floral. Right. I feel like for scents, time of year really plays into it for me. Yes. Agree. In the summer, sometimes you want something fresher. Fresher, lighter. I do like a floral scent, though. I do like a floral scent. Hmm. And I think it's not just like, you know, it's candles, but also like your personal signature scent. You're right. I'm still trying to nail down my signature scent. Yeah, no, I'm shopping around. Um, listeners, if you have any advice for the best signature scent, let us know. 
please do. Shall we get into our heights and shites? Let's get into the heights and shits. I think first and foremost, obviously, our listeners are probably dying to know why we didn't have an episode this past week, and that's because it was Halloween weekend. And we were busy celebrating. We were really busy. I, I spent a lot of last week making my costume, so. <laughs> I convinced Chelsea to go to a haunted house with me, and it was amazing. It was in a church, ba- a Catholic church basement that is yes. actual catacombs, but yes. we didn't really see the catacombs while we were there. There was one part that was like, this this is either the actual catacombs or it's just meant to look that way because it's part right. of a haunted house, but um, it was fun. And it she was wasn't as scared as she thought she was going to be, so. And thankfully, Grace decided to lead the pack. She was mm-hmm. she was in charge. She was charging us ahead, and that that helped a lot. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, it really did. Um, I'm happy yeah, last to week do we, it. We spent so much time preparing for Halloween that we just couldn't find it in ourselves to dedicate time for the po- podcast. Um, but I hope that you guys can can at least forgive us that single discretion. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. I was like sad about the lack of halloween themed puzzles yeah right i agree there wasn't like not saying that evan needs to do like a haunted house (laughs) puzzle every year but there was kind of i think the monday new york times was sort of halloween themed but like the theme was cute it was kind of like taking regular phrases and like making them sound kind of spooky but you know, I guess ever since Evan did his haunted house puzzle for Waypo, the bar has been set high. N- nothing can live up to that. And so I feel like because we didn't have something to that caliber, I was, I'm not going to say disappointed, but I was just like, damn, okay. I was, I was hoping to have a little bit more Halloween fun in the well, puzzles. Speaking of that theme from Monday, October 31st by Emily Carroll, the New York Times. Um, I highlighted it in my kit. Okay. So um, there were three puzzle or three clues that went like this. 20 across punctuation marks indicating irony is scare quotes. 36 mm-hmm. across binges on bad news and modern slang. Doom scrolls. Mm-hmm. 43 across mail that cannot be delivered or returned. Dead letters. And then the mm-hmm. revealer was 59 across hired pen or punnily the author of 20, 36 and 43 across. And so scare quotes, doom scrolls, dead letters, and the answer was ghost writer. So, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I, I kind of have a ship from this puzzle. <gasps> oh, I, okay. Once again, and this could just be Will Short, so this is no hate to this constructor, but can we please let the New York Times know that Grumpy Cat is so old at this point, it's yeah, not it- considered an internet meme. Like... It needs to die. Uh, the clue is one, and it's the opener. Yeah. One across. Viral oh. internet joke like Grumpy Cat, and the answer is meme. And they always try and clue meme in the puzzle. I mean, I guess, I don't know. Memes are I, so I hard like... because they change so much over time that it immediately becomes outdated once you use it. But they love to use Grumpy Cat. They do. And I guess he is a meme, too, but he's also like a persona, internet persona. Um yeah. but those memes I feel like don't even like people don't even use those memes anymore. They don't. I feel like if you are desperate to use Grumpy Cat, um you could kind of maybe say like Grumpy Cat is like an original meme, like one of the forefathers yeah. of the meme world. But like you can clue it as like like the original Grumpy Cat or some I don't know. Like I feel like the way it's often included in the New York Times, it makes it seem like it's current and it, the Grumpy Cat is very much not current in fact nobody uses grumpy cat if you use grumpy cat gen z will tear you to shreds and it's fine 
but should we start using really old memes like ironically like awkward <laughs> penguin i feel like that awkward could happen penguin. I could see that happening. yeah or what's the one like the the honey bear one the sad bear one i forget i don't remember these memes are so old now i don't even remember yeah. them you know too long grumpy ago cat. grumpy cat i remember just because of the persona and sadly grumpy cat did pass away mm-hmm. um okay i'm gonna keep us on the halloween kick are you finished with that puzzle yes okay so i will talk about the sunday wapo evan burn holes there were you know even though evan didn't give us a full haunted house puzzle this year which is totally fine evan does bust his ass every week giving us amazing sunday themes mm-hmm. um there were some halloween themed clue not clues well yeah themed clues but it wasn't like part of like the larger theme for the puzzle um so i just wanted to shout out some halloween you know clues and answers because even though it's past halloween the next holiday is thanksgiving and nobody really cares so 41 across masking blank stuff for making mummy dummies the answer is tape masking tape which is very cute Mm -hmm. 52 across uh, and these are not the only halloween type clues and answers that evan had in the puzzle i just pulled out a couple 52 across snack on halloween candy say and the answer is eat eat so that's some you know crossword use and evan did a fun thing and he clued it like halloween um 54 across part of a darth vader costume and the answer is cape and then let's see 44 down body parts that first emerge from graves in zombie tropes and the answer is arms, mm-hmm. which is very, like, evocative, that image. And then this one I thought was funny because it reminded me of a time in college. Uh, 104 across, zombie fun runs, for example. And the answer is races. And I remember when I was in college and, you know, the fun run phase was, like, huge. I know people still do different types of themed fun runs. But I remember the zombie fun run phase happened when I was probably, like, a sophomore or junior in college where you would shut down huge sections of metropolitan areas and you would do your fun run, but you'd have to, like, pretend that you were running away from zombies. And I tried desperately to get my friends to do it with me. Could you imagine me doing a fun run at all, let alone a zombie fun run? Is that what you – or do you dress up as zombies? So it depends on – um the fun run Mm -hmm. either they'll have volunteers acting as the zombies chasing you or when you sign up you are either designated as like a potential survivor or a zombie and the goal is to like run around and like pull people's flags kind of like flag football in a way that's fun that that's what i need to like run something to be running (laughs) from (laughs) exactly um but yeah i think i was really into trying to do that but my friends at the time were not so I don't know if they still do them. Do they? Maybe they do. I'm not in the fun run circuit, so I don't know. Yeah, that's true. It's true. I have others from that puzzle. Or do you have more? No, please. Go ahead. Um, I just wanted to highlight some Halloween ones. These are Halloween-esque. Um, I just liked them. 95 across. Blank hard. Manic panic hair coloring gel. It was dye hard. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, we saw some trick-or-treaters with dyed hair, and it was very cute. Very cute. Um, two down. Tess's daughter in Freaky Friday. And the answer is Anna. I just love that he's going Freaky Friday. And a lot of people on TikTok went as uh, the characters from Freaky Friday for Halloween. We should watch Freaky Friday. Maybe New Year's. Mm. I haven't seen it in so long. That could be a good one. Yeah, once we finish all of our Twilight movies. Twilight, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I'm down. <laughs> 79 down. Midnight Cocktail in Practical Magic. The answer is Margarita, because they all are like that scene where they're all dancing around the kitchen drinking margaritas. Yeah. Um, oh, that was it for that i had that was it for you name okay well yeah i mean that's 
we like to keep the Halloween spirit alive. Um, I'm going to take us to the Monday, October 31st, New Yorker by Cameron Austin Collins. Uh, this one, you know, the New Yorker puzzles are only themed on Fridays. That's okay. I was hoping for some Halloween fun in this one, but there we're wasn't. Desperate. But the, we're desperate, but there's a lot of really good ones in this puzzle. 34 across. Juicy part of the dish, question mark. Salacious detail. Mm, yes. Right? Uh, 39 across. Culture choices for grocery shoppers. Yogurt. Yes. So good. Um, 54 across. Sample response, question mark. I'll take one. Nice. Right? Uh, and then 58 across, reached from behind, question mark. This was funny. Made me laugh. What is it? Butt dialed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Very good. The New Yorkers this week were very good. Um, well, I'll talk about the Thursday, November 3rd New Yorker by Robin Weintraub. This was my... It was so good, right? Yeah, there were oh, lots no. of good I ones. Like this one. Yeah. Um, 16 across, sweet tidbit in a mug of hot cocoa mini marshmallow which is like 15 mm-hmm. letters so it was all the way across yes. a lot of these are um 23 across jocular answer to how old are you now at a 30th birthday party 29 again <laughs> um i made me happy to see 30 across anthony who starred in the movie in the heights ramos mm-hmm. although he's under fire if you know you know yes um, yes yes 33 across showbiz awards sweep completed by jennifer hudson in 2022 the egot which we mm. spoke about we did um i don't know if we knew wait that was about this her. year yeah so yeah she might be i think the newest. it's brand new yeah 53 across social butterfly self-assessment i'm a people person also 15 mm-hmm. letters across um one down something easy to part with question mark and the answer was comb. <laughs> um, 36 down, foods that might be comforting when you are this entry spelled backwards. And it's desserts because desserts backwards is stressed. Which I had no idea. Am I like the last person on earth to know that? I've heard that joke before, yeah. That's crazy. So, I had no idea. I was sorry. shocked when I put that in. I was like, oh, my God. Um, I loved this puzzle because the 15 across spanners were so satisfying, like mini marshmallows, 29 again. Mm -hmm. I'm a people person. There's another one, 40 across. Final run-throughs at performances was dress rehearsals. You love to see it when you have like these really interesting words or phrases as 59 across. And we've talked about this before. Like a constructor must feel so excited when they discover like some sort of phrase or word that's 15 letters that they can add to their word list Mm -hmm. because... You know, I've never seen mini marshmallow in a puzzle before. That was that was satisfying. Um, I also liked the opener of this puzzle. One across, blank lock, and then in parentheses, in all caps, it was key that helps you type like this. End <laughs> parentheses, and the answer was caps. So caps lock. It was just fun, very good. Uh, what else do I have here? Uh, from the Wednesday, November second, New Yorker by Patrick Berry. Um, I just. One thought this was a little bit of a talking point. Nine nine across, mantelpiece item in some Hollywood homes. And the answer is Oscar, which I just think is a funny thing to think about is that, yeah, there's probably a lot of homes in Hollywood that have, they got the good old Oscar statue on the mantelpiece. Mm-hmm. And it's related to the EGOT uh, topic that Grace talked about. Good old un- um, Uncle Oscar. Uncle Oscar. Uh, and then 48 down, related to your incense uh topic but also just like the scent poll that you did 
and also some other things. Uh, 48 down, perfume ingredient that's now mostly synthetically produced, and the answer was musk, Mm. M-U-S-K, but also uh, since, you know, if we're looking for words to never, you know, people to never clue in crosswords again, Elon Musk is one of those, and this is an incredible way to clue the word musk if you're so interested in continuing to use that word from your word list um just based off of literally his entire history and more recently the twitter acquisition from elon so anyway just just thanks for that patrick i i prefer this type of cluing for that word plenty of ways to talk about musk although i do feel like most of the time he's clued with his first name because it's yeah. such an interesting combo of letters. So, isn't Elon also a school, a university in like North Carolina? Hmm, it's a good question. Oh, I believe I it is. That's. I'm gonna have to trust you on that one. I'm sure someone will correct me if it's not. <laughs> well, that's what all. I had. That's all I had. That's all I had. Well, let's flip the coin then. All right, let's flip the coin then. I saw a tweet the other day that was like podcasters when they're 40 minutes into an episode like all right let's just dive right in (laughs) (laughs) okay but this couldn't be us we have another section before we get to our topic section so it's true all right we're flipping the coin now (gasps) tails me can you believe i haven't started first in a while all right Okay, my topic comes from the Monday, October 31st, New York Times by Emily Carroll. Oh, okay. One down, the brainy bunch, question mark, and the answer is Mensa. (gasps) Interesting. I'm excited to learn about this. Yes. Well, buckle up. It's actually, I mean, I was hoping there would be something like really crazy. There's not, but it is interesting. Okay, okay. Um, Okay, Mensa. For those that don't know, it's an international society whose sole qualification for membership is a high score on a standardized IQ test. More specifically, Mm. you have to score in the top 2% of the general population. The word mensa translates to table in Latin, but mens also means mind and mensis means month. So the name mensa refers to like mind table month, a.k.a. a monthly meeting of the minds around a table in theory. Okay. In theory. Yes. Love it. Um, Mensa was founded in Oxford, England in 1946 by Roland Beryl and Lancelot Lionel Ware. So Beryl and Ware oh. are the two guys who found it. My God. And of course it was founded there. Yes. Okay. Well, Beryl was Australian. So he was an Australian expat lawyer, I believe, living in England. And then Dr. Ware was a PhD on his way to becoming a barrister. Okay. Um, Smarty pants. Dr. Ware had become interested in intelligence testing while working at the National Institute for Medical Research. The two men met by chance on a train on the way home for Christmas. <laughs> oh my God, a meet cue? Are yes, you kidding me? I that know. is like. And they don't fall in love, but whatever. Okay, that's a lie. Some There's got to be some tension there. Uh, well, I will write in homoerotic tension wherever I can. <laughs> um, they kept in touch and eventually started talking about creating a club for highly intelligent people to discuss how to fix the world's Amazing. problem, which sounds like insufferable that they were like, you know what? We need to have a club for really smart people like us. Well, yeah, it, it, this is all like, I don't know. I always get weird when you get like, a, you know, kind of like 
privileged white guys together yeah. making clubs we'll, to we'll, exclude other people. We get but, into that. Okay. <laughs> so Dr. Ware administered the Cattle 3 test to Beryl, who apparently scored off the charts. Beryl was very happy about this. Um, he was down to bankroll the idea to start Mensa. And um, this wasn't for Mensa's website, but apparently he was kind of an eccentric person to start with. So before establishing Mensa, he tried to start a movement to encourage both men and women to wear bright colored clothes, whatever that means. <laughs> and then after the 1950s, <clears throat> when he retired from Mensa, he lived out the rest of his days as a recluse, rarely leaving his London flat. So he's going through something. But anyways. Okay. Back to um, earlier on October 1st, 1946, Beryl had the first piece, piece of Mensa literature printed, and that date is now the recognized founding date of the organization. October 1st, 1946. So they, they had October. an anniversary recently-ish. All right. Um, how did Mensa move to the United States? Well, the first handful of American Mensa members joined between 1951 and 1959. They were mostly expat British people or Americans who had learned about Mensa while visiting England. So it's very much like an English thing. Hmm. Um, one American was a reporter named John Wilcock who attended a Mensa meeting while visiting England. He returned and wrote a column about Mensa for the Village Voice. Shout out to Rent, if you know, you know. Peter A. <laughs> Sturgeon, a medical writer in Brooklyn, read that article, wrote to the Mensa selection agency asking to become a member. So basically, this one guy <gasps> went to England like found out about it, wrote about it in this paper in the, the U.S., and then this medical writer saw it and was like, "We need to start one in the U.S." So we need to do it now. Yeah. The founding okay. meeting took place on September 30th, 1960, at the Brooklyn home of Peter and Ines Sturgeon, and four other members attended. Very small wow. group. In mm -hmm. August 1960, Peter was authorized to start forming a New York City regional group and was sent the list of the 22 Mensons in the United States. So started very small. Cute. This group was the first outside Britain to be recognized and has since evolved into American Mensa Limited. By 1963, the organization had grown to 1,000 members. By its 40th anniversary, American Mensa had about 47,000 members and its headquarters moved from Brooklyn to Arlington, Texas. Interesting choice. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is the purpose of Mensa? Well, Mensa yeah. has a constitution and they list their three purposes in there. They are one, to identify and foster human intelligence for the benefit of humanity. Two, to encourage research into the nature, characteristics, and uses of intelligence. Whatever that means. Three, to provide a stimulating intellectual and social environment for its members. The Mensa Education and Research Foundation was established in 1971 to pursue excellence in the study and use of intelligence, and each year this nonprofit gives away the an average of $60,000 in scholarships through a scholarship program run by 400 volunteers from all over the country. That's like their, Okay. You know, uh, wow. I couldn't be in Mensa because I just forgot the word of, like, not charity. <laughs> Like their nonprofit. Oh my god. Oh my. It'll come to me god. later. You know, it's early. My, my brain's still firing up. Um. Okay. She's not firing all four cylinders right now. That's a car reference, I think. Um. Today, there are more than one hundred thousand Mensa members registered in more than one hundred countries. Some members are very, very young, like four years old, and some are in there. You know, are a hundred plus. But the majority of members are in the twenty to sixty age bracket, and Yes, to be a Mensa member, you have to, like, pay a yearly fee. So some people are mm. in it for just a little bit. Um, according to Mensa's website, the membership is diverse. Some members are high school dropouts. Others have multiple doctorates. There are welfare, welfare Mensons and some who are millionaires. Mm. Their occupations are just as varied from truck drivers to physicists with PhDs. 
Hmm. About those very young members, how did they join? So when Adam Kirby joined British Mensa, he enjoyed reading Shakespeare and learning languages, which seems like, okay, yeah, you joined Mensa. That's not surprising. But he was only two years and five months old. Huh? According to Daily Mail report, the toddler scored 141 on the Stanford Binet IQ test, four points below the genius threshold. At 29 months, Kirby could read at the level of an average five-year-old, spell more than 100 words, count to 1,000, and perform simple addition and subtraction. Philanthropy. That's the word I was looking for. And I bet you there she goes. Adam Kirby would have gotten that immediately. But Immediately. Yeah. Um, despite all of this, he wasn't the youngest person to ever join British Mensa. That title belongs to Elise Tan Roberts, who was two years and four months old when she joined in 2009. Damn. In Australia, around one-third of Mensa's members are children. Seven of them are aged under four, says Will... Or, sorry. Are aged under four. What about celebrities in Mensa? Um, there's a lot of, like, authors and stuff who are in Mensa mm-hmm. and, like, academic. But I'm talking about, like, true actors. Mm-hmm. There were some that, admittedly, I had never heard of. I'm sure a lot mm-hmm. of our listeners know who they are. But these are the ones that I actually know. <laughs> um, Nolan Gould from Modern Family, who plays, like, the dumb son um okay gina davis okay uh, lisa simpson although she's not a real person but her character she is mm-hmm. in mensa and then kara hayward from moonrise kingdom okay um <clears throat> but what is it but really... these aren't like your brads and angelinas yeah <laughs> well those are people no offense who, to brad or angelina sorry. you know took the test and tried to get in true which we'll true, talk true. about later but what is it really like in mensa like yeah what's it like you know they have their constitution what they are they're you know, ultimate goal is, um, I read an article on the Washington, Washington, Washingtonian called Talk Nerdy to Me, My Year in Mensa by Sophie Gilbert. And the opening paragraph states, quote, the first thing you need to know is that no one has a good reason for joining Mensa. Pretty much anyone who tries to join a high IQ society does so ultimately because he or she is an insufferable jerk. Maybe years of (laughs) bullying for being a mathlete or wearing Argyle sweaters well into junior high has given the person an inferiority complex. Or maybe he Mm. just wants a bumper sticker that lets everyone on the I-95 know he's a genius. Either way, it's never Mm. for noble reasons, however however hard someone might pretend otherwise. So Mm. Sophie spent a year in the Metropolitan Washington chapter. Um, and she said her experiences were some of the weirdest and most uncomfortable she has ever had. She said it mostly involved special interest groups or SIGs, um, which are, you know, groups that are divided for special interest, as the name would imply, um, Mm -hmm. food and drink oriented meetups and regional websites that, quote, look as if they were coded in the earliest days of the internet. Oh, my God. Um, she also mentioned something else that I didn't see on the Mensa, because my first little bit, I got most of that from the Mensa website, but she mentioned mm-hmm. something I didn't see, which is that Roland Barrel, the Australian expat founder, the eccentric one, mm-hmm. he had been rejected from Oxford University, and then he later developed an unhealthy obsession with the school, which may explain <gasps> his, like, need or his want to jump on this idea of, like, yes, we need to have this elite society, because sure. then that validates me as, like, being worthy of, you know, yeah. making it yeah, to yeah, Oxford. Yeah. Mm-hmm. um and so sophie said the same thing she's like yeah i did this as like a journalistic thing but i also want to prove to myself that you know i belonged in mensa and it would make me feel better about like rejections that i've gotten either at work or school yeah. or from people mm-hmm. um so sophie took the 18 dollar preliminary test on mensa's website which she scored high on so then she went to take the official test and weirdly it's free to take if you're a journalist 
um, because they need the marketing. But if you're not a journalist, Mm -hmm. only 40 bucks. And the test takes three hours. She said her test proctor was part of a SIG called BLAM, Blazing Lightly Armed Mensons, which met up once a month to go to a shooting range. That's like kind of an example of what some of the SIGs are. Okay. Um, And she passed the test. And so she joined. But she points out that, you know, there's a lot of smart people in Washington. So according to Mensa, you have to score in the top 2% of the general population to qualify for membership. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 2% of the population in in Washington is 120,000 people. You know, that's who would qualify to be in Mensa. But only 2,000 people are members. So it gets you thinking like, all right, there's 118,000 Mensa smart whatever. That means people in Washington area that can't be bothered to join. So, mm-hmm. like, what is it that makes this very small percentage want to join? Mm-hmm. Um, she says, quote, Mensa is not just a society for highly intelligent people. It is a society for people who want to belong to a society that tells them that they are highly intelligent. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So Sophie, That's exactly what I thought it was. Yeah. So Sophie joined. I mean, she said that when she took the test, she got a pencil. So, like, a Mensa pencil that she got to keep after. So that is... Um, That's kind of cute, though. Sophie didn't join a special interest group, but she did go to the 2012 Regional Gathering, which is a three-day conference where 250 local Bensons get together at a Hyatt near Dole's airport. There's karaoke, a hot tub pool party, a renaissance man slash comedy wench costume contest on Saturday, and an 11 p.m. lecture on, quote, potions, lotions, and notions designed to add spice to your love life titled Impassioned M's. Um, so yeah, oh, party atmosphere, a lot of sexual undertones. She talks, sounds like a big frat party, like a frat, you know, a very nerdy frat. Yeah. Um, yeah. she talked to a man who had been a Mensa member for 45 years. She asked if the group had changed a lot and he said, quote, oh yes, it used to be for everyone. Now it's run by the rich and well-connected, the people who can afford to have free time. And it's been ruined by political correctness. There are special interest groups for Asians and Hispanics. I want to start a SIG for whites only, but corporate Mensa wouldn't let me. Um, <laughs> O-M-G. Uh, she went to a couple other meetings that also had like sexual and strange undertones um, outside okay. of this conference. Like she said, mm-hmm. she went to a new members meeting that happened to be hosted in her building and these like men were talking to her and this lady was like oh you and this other guy would be like a really cute couple my husband and i met in mensa and then she's like oh actually i'm married and then she's like it was very awkward the rest of the night right it's like oh you're married to a non-mensa yeah. interesting <laughs> um so she didn't renew her membership for the year but they she says that she still sometimes gets emails about it she says she suspects that their numbers are kind of dwindling especially because a lot of their members are children because it's something that like parents do Hello. to get their children you know to just say they're children yeah. are Mensa. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just one example. There were a couple different articles about people joining Mensa, and they all had the same vibe. Basically, if you were a woman, you were being hit on. Many people commented how it felt like a group for people looking to get laid. Um, also, there's like a lot of far right factions, especially online and like Facebook groups. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about membership requirements and IQ okay. tests. So, okay. the original IQ test was developed by Alfred Binet and Theodore Simon as a way to, quote, identify children in need of alternative education in France. At that time, labeling people as feeble-minded was common, very, like, mm. you know, eugenics-esque. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Henry Goddard, Godard, the superintendent at the Vi- Vinland Training School for Feeble-Minded Boys and Girls in New Jersey, 
introduced a hierarchy of feeble-mindedness. These were the literal like levels of this IQ test. There was idiot, imbecile, and moron. Oh my God. Goddard was... Sorry from New Jersey. (laughs) Goddard was a fervent advocate for institutionalization and family removal of the feeble-minded, as well as for mass testing in order to identify them in the general population. Um, but today, Woof. yes, the m- most commonly used IQ test is the Stanford Binet, Binet IQ test, and that was invented in 1916 by Lewis Terman, and he basically added on to Binet's original um, test. So okay. I read an article in The Atlantic called The Truth About the IQ Test by David Schenk, and he says that, you know, this new IQ test was supposed to measure your, quote, native intelligence. Quote, IQ tests are different from school grades, different from SAT scores, different from any other test you will ever take because they somehow reveal the core innate abilities of each person's brain, your Hmm. clock speed, your RAM, your absolute limit. So IQ tests, I've never taken one, but I've taken like logic tests before and Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's essentially that. It's not. Oh, I would not do well on a logic. T- I don't know. <laughs> Most of the time, people are consistent in their IQ score. So if you scored in the top of your pers- like class in fourth grade, you would likely do the same when you were in 12th grade and later in adulthood. But does this mean that intelligence is innate? No, it basically means that students who perform at the top of the class in fourth grade continue to perform well thanks to factors that are able to remain stable in students' lives, like families, lifestyles, resources, etc. Mm-hmm. The most important thing to take away is that IQ tests measure current academic abilities, not any sort of fixed innate intelligence. So, mm-hmm. first of all, they're skewed towards, you know, they don't account for, like, people Environmental who, factors. Yeah, who don't have, you know... It, basically, it's like making sure that you have the resources to be able to, like, sit down and focus well. and, and sure. take a test. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of intelligence in the world. And IQ tests do not measure creativity. They do not measure practical intelligence, a.k.a. street smarts. And they do not measure what some psychologists call emotional intelligence, which I feel like is evident is- in some of these experiences that people have in Mensa groups. And so something I would argue is probably the most important yeah. intelligence of all. Um, with that in mind, is Mensa helpful to society? So American <laughs> Mensa executive director Pamela Donahue says, quote, we find people join just to join because their third grade teacher said they would never amount to anything. They need some sort of validation. And then they realize all of a sudden that there's also this group of people in Mensa who are really fun. So why people join and why people stay are very different reasons. So like Sophie says, a lot of people join to prove something to themselves and society. I think that's why it kind of breeds a lot of this like egotistical and harmful self-serving mm. ideas, why it kind of tends to lean towards like this very far right um mm-hmm. ideology yeah. but at the same time everyone deserves to feel like they belong if mensa mm-hmm. gives that to you and you're not hurting anyone then fine i'm sure there's a lot of like very harmless sigs um in mm-hmm. mensa that you can join and you know of course it's like everyone deserves to feel like they belong somewhere and to have people yeah, that they can relate to mm-hmm. um But it's important to remember that IQ tests only measure one type of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Basically, you can have fun with your friends who share the same interests, but don't think you're better than anyone because of it. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's... that's True words of wisdom from Grace. Yeah. Yeah. True words of wisdom. Um, I think, I mean, it's a slippery slope, I think, to be like, well, like... I only want to hang out with people who are just as smart as I am because it's like, oh, well, only in this very specific way that they are on mm-hmm. your same level. And even then, it's like someone else 
like could be just as smart as you are, but mm-hmm. they don't have, you know, they're just not good at taking tests or whatever. To be fair, I hate hanging out with people that seem smarter than me. Mm-hmm. So you would never I join never, Mensa. <laughs> I could never join Mensa because it would be like a huge blow to my ego. Because, I mean, here's the thing. Like, my hype girl self Mm -hmm. truly believes I'm the smartest person that there is. Reality would say say differently. Um, But, yeah. Well, um, one of the articles that I read, she said that she went to, like, you know, this conference. And she said that they were doing cryptics or cryptograms or something. And she was like, and I was so bad at it. And I kept making jokes about how... I was, like, really dumb. She's like, but no one laughed because they were probably all thinking the same thing. <laughs> but it's like, just because you score high in an IQ test doesn't mean you are you would automatically be good at, like, this one specific type of puzzle. Yeah. Um, well, when I was getting my ADHD testing, part of it is, like, I don't think it's, like, a true IQ test, but my psychologist was like, oh, yeah, you scored really high on the IQ portion of this test. And I was like, don't tell me that. Like, literally <laughs> don't tell me that because... I will become insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would like like to take an IQ test just to see. But screw it. Want to join Mensa just to see what happens? Just to take the test. We could say we're journalists. We have a podcast. Yeah, we do have a podcast. Hmm. All right. Something to think about. Maybe next time we'll be Mensa members. <laughs> because yeah, I I think like that ego part of me is my Aquarius. Like I like being like kind of like in this esoteric like you know, like elevated academic other mm-hmm. in theory, but in practice, I'm, I'm, I'm a twilight girly. I can't I, feel like I'm being judged. I'm a dunks girly. You know, <laughs> by people for my interest and decisions yeah. and sometimes hard time remembering certain vocabulary, <laughs> but I got, yeah. I got in the end. You did. You do. Well, Amazing. Maybe we, maybe we will join. Maybe we won't. We'll keep you on your toes. We'll let you know, though, listeners. So my topic comes from the Monday, October 31st, New Yorker by Cameron Austin Collins, 37 across, long distance race that includes a mandatory 24-hour stop. It is the Iditarod. Oh, my gosh. We're talking about the Iditarod today. Um... I feel like I only know about the Iditarod from, like, I can't even remember, maybe, like, Balto? But Balto wasn't technically the Iditarod. Um, Snow dogs? There is snow dogs. That's what it is. <laughs> snow dogs. Um, if you know, you know. Anyway, so the Iditarod, also known as the Iditarod uh, Trail Sled Dog Race, or the last grace, great race on Earth, is an annual long-distance sled dog race and it's run in early March. It travels from Anchorage to Nome, entirely within the U.S. state of Alaska, and mushers and a team of t- between 12, and I read it different numbers, 14 or 16 dogs, mm-hmm. uh, cover the distance of nearly 1,000 miles in 8 to 15 days or more across mountain ranges, through flat tundra, and all the way to the western Alaskan coast. Wait, sorry, how many days total? Anywhere from 8 to 15 days-ish. Okay. I think average runtime is about 10 days mm. currently. It used to be a lot longer, but it's different now. The dogs have gotten much faster. <laughs> They've gotten much faster. They're about 12 feet tall. Okay, so where did 
the Iditarod all begin. First, uh, I got most of my information from the official Iditarod website. They've got a very nice history section there. Um, There's some other like, you know, articles online. There's an Atlantic article, which I will talk about a little bit later. Uh, But yeah, that's where I got most of my information. So yeah, where did the Iditarod race begin? So the route where the race follows is actually like a trail that was created long before the race became a race. The trail was used by native Alaskans for hunting and traveling to various villages. So along the Iditarod Trail, there's a lot of like smaller Alaskan villages, and a lot of them are now ghost towns. But at the time when this was just used as like a tr- like a transport trail, there were vill- people living in these villages. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, The trail was used for hunting and traveling, uh, and there were various attempts by the U.S. government to keep the trail clear, because that's one of the big things is, like, the trail, like, as time goes on, the trail would either, like, get filled with snow or trees would fall or brush would grow. And, like, if you can't cross the trail, then nobody's using the trail. And so the U.S. government tried keeping the trail clear, but it wasn't until 1910 when gold was discovered in the small villages along the trail that it became regularly used as a means of supplying miners and settlements with mail and other supplies. Uh, And all of these things were delivered by dog sled teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the small villages along this route was called Iditarod. So the trail also provided a route for gold to be sent out of Alaska when the Bering Sea was frozen. So, you know, if the sea is frozen, you got to get the the gold out of there some other way. Mm -hmm. And so you would throw them on the back of a dog sled and you would take them down the Adidarad Trail and out towards seaward in Alaska. Uh, And let's see, let's see. Yeah, dog sled teams would carry the the gold to the ice-free bay at seaward. And then it would be loaded on ships there and moved south. Mm Mm-hmm. This was all before the time of casual plane travel. So before the time of airplanes, delivering mail and supplies to remote Alaskan areas was left to dog sled teams. This method of transport had been in use for a long time by Native Alaskans. So that was like their main mode of transportation across heavy embankments of snow. Uh, And dog teams helped uh, them travel and carry game that they hunted and carry other food and water and other supplies. Uh, People who lived in and explored Alaska also used dog sled teams to survive and explore. So it was like the main mode of transport. Because, I mean, you can't like, it's not like you could drive like a horse-drawn carriage across Mm -hmm. like 12 feet of snow, right? Let's fast forward a little bit. After World War II, short and medium dog sled teams were still common in many areas of Alaska. But during the 60s came the invention of the, quote, iron dog also known as the snow machine or the snowmobile uh, resulting in the mass abandonment of dog teams across the state and loss of much of the mushing lore which i found interesting is that uh, huskies were usually the the dogs that were used obviously um, and husky population started declining because um nobody was using dog sled teams anymore so like the the breed was like basically going extinct yeah that was interesting although i guess i mean i guess it's good for the dogs to get a break Mm, we're going to talk about animal cruelty okay. in a bit. Um, so this is where the man, a man named Joe Reddington Sr. comes in. He was born in Kingfisher, Oklahoma on February 1st. So he's an Aquarius. He was born in 1917. Mm-hmm. He moved to Alaska in 1948. And he filed a Homestead Act claim along the Iditarod Trail in Nick and founded the Nick Kennels. So 
the Homestead Act, and this is from Wikipedia, it's like, in case you didn't know, I'm just going to read directly from Wikipedia. The Homestead Acts were several laws in the United States by which an applicant could acquire ownership of government land or the public domain, typically called a homestead. In all, more than 160 million acres of public land or nearly 10% of total area of the United States was given away for free to 1.6 billion or million homesteaders. Most of the homesteads were west of the Mississippi River. So he filed a homestead claim and in Alaska and was given a huge chunk of land in Alaska. And if you're interested in like why the Homestead Act is complicated, then Google it because it's not just as simple as giving away free land. It's about taking land from people and then giving it away to, for free to white people. Anyway, um, so while living off of the Iditarod Trail, Reddington learned about Alaska's history of dog mushing from locals and experienced miners that lived there. And in 1964, a committee was formed to look into ways for celebrating the historical and cultural events of Alaska, specifically because 1967 marked the 100th anniversary of Alaska being purchased from Russia by the U.S. Mm -hmm. So they're like, how do we celebrate the 100th anniversary of now owning this huge tract of land? Um, and so the committee was called the Wasilla Nick Centennial Committee. <laughs> Struggle over that word. Uh, Dorothy Page was the chairman of the committee, and she came up with this idea of a hosting a dog sled race to kind of celebrate the hundred years that Alaska was now part of the U.S. Okay, um, and to kind of celebrate the historically significant Iditarod Trail. Joe Reddington Sr. and his wife, Violet, were deeply interested in the Iditarod Trail and felt that the centennial race would help preserve the historic gold rush and mail route, as well as getting it recognized nationally. So his interest was specifically in revitalizing dog sledding, which was on the verge of vanishing. Uh, and this is what he said, quote, when I, visit when I visited interior villages in the 1950s, every household had five or six dogs. Uh, they were the only transportation. But by the late 60s, village dogs were almost gone, mm. end quote. And so when he moved to Alaska, he'd open a kennel. So, like, he was, like, real big into dogs. Yeah. So the Reddingtons and the Pages joined forces. Uh, and with the help of volunteer label labor, the first part of the trail was cleared, including nine miles of the original Iditarod Trail. And in 1967, 58 dog mushers competed in a two-heat, 56-mile cent Centennial race between Nick and Big Lake, and the prize money was $25,000, okay? So that was the first ever race, but that's not the official Iditarod race. Um, and then 1968, the race was canceled due to lack of snow, but it was held again in 1969, but the prize money was only $1,000 this time, so only 12 mushers participated. And sadly, after that, interest in the race was kind of dying down. Hmm. A lot of controversy kind of surrounded this. People were like, a lot of dogs are dying out on this trail. Like, why are we running this race? And so less people were donating money to the prize. So, like, you know, if there's not a big prize money, they're going to have less racers. Mm -hmm. But Reddington wasn't willing to give up his dream of long-distance sled dog racing. He was able to raise money for a... $51,325 prize, and he extended the route through more historic gold rush towns, including Iditarod, ending the race in Nome for a total of more than a thousand miles, and the first ever Iditarod race was held in 1973. The winner of the first Iditarod race was a man named Dick Wilmarth, and his lead sled dog was named Hotfoot. Oh my gosh, is that, adorable. Right? 
Uh, and due in part to Reddington's efforts, the popularity of dog mushing was revived in the 70s, specifically as a recreational sport. It was no longer just like a transportation method. Mm -hmm. People were doing it for fun. Uh, he became known as the father of the Iditarod for his work promoting the race. Uh, and he actually competed in the race 17 times from 1974 to 1977. Uh, but he never placed higher than his fifth place finish when he was 72 years old. Oh, my gosh. Uh, he was an honorary musher in the 1997 race uh, as he was 80 years old. Uh, and he did complete it, though. And then he died, sadly, in June 20 on June 24th, 1999 uh, from cancer. And he was buried with his favorite dog sled in Wasilla, Alaska. And there's actually a life-size bronze statue of himself uh, at the Iditarod Trail Committee headquarters, hmm. if you're interested. So let's talk a little bit more about the race, the distance, the conditions, and the dogs. Nice. Okay. So a ceremonial start occurs in the city of Anchorage, but the official start actually happens in Willow, uh, a city 80 miles north of Anchorage. The trail runs from Willow up the rainy pass of the Alaskan Range. So there's, it covers two Alaskan um, mountain ranges. Mm -hmm. um, into the sparsely populated interior of Alaska, and then along the shore of the Bering Sea, finally reaching Nome in western Alaska. Teams race through blizzards, causing whiteout conditions, sub-zero temperatures, and gale force winds, which can result in wind chill of negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh my That's god. That's crazy. That's crazy. Uh, the trail uh, is through rugged landscape of tundra, spruce forests, over hills and mountain passes, across rivers, and even over sea ice. And so, um, while it starts kind of like an anchorage, sort of like in a like urban center center, most of the route passes through widely separated towns and villages um, and small settlements. So it's, most of it is like very sparse and mm -hmm. very deserted. So you're kind of like out there on your own. The last leg of the race is run down Front Street in Nome, and every musher's arrival is heralded by the city's fire alarm, and every musher is greeted by a crowd, no matter what time of day that they arrive. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and the Iditarod is regarded as a symbolic link to the early history of the state of Alaska, uh, and is connected to the many traditions commemorating the legacy of dog mushing. Uh, the yearly competitors are still largely Alaskan in terms of like where they're from, mm -hmm. but com competitors from 14 countries have competed in the event, including Martin Busser from Switzerland, and he became the first foreign winner in 1992. We're going to talk a little bit about Martin in a second. And then Libby Riddles, which is a great name, was the first woman to win the race in 1985, followed by Su Susan Butcher, who became the second woman to win in 1986, and she went on to win three more times. Damn. Yeah. And then Mark, uh, sorry, Mitch Sevy or CV, he was the person who set the fastest time for winning the Iditarod in 2017, crossing the line in Nome in eight days, three hours, 40 minutes, and 13 seconds. And he was also the oldest person to ever win the race at 57 years old at the wow. time. Two records. Two records. Well, so that brings me to the question of, well, is this okay to do to a team of dogs? Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't know much about what constitutes as animal cruelty. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think there are very clear instances of animal cruelty. And I think there are other things where it's like, I don't know. Let's just, let's get into it. And we can kind of like chit chat mm -hmm. about what we think. Okay. So there is a great article 
um, from the Atlantic called The Perilous Iditarod by Mark Durr. This was published a long time ago, 1995. However, I think it gives a lot of interesting context to the time when the Iditarod was first coming under fire for animal cruelty. So it was only in like the early 90s when they started requiring like, you know, veterinarian oversight on the the Mm -hmm. runs. Okay, which is crazy to think about. And there were no records really previously to con- to count how many dogs had died on the runs. Mm-hmm. It was only like in the 90s that they really started keeping track of these things uh, and archiving this data and information. And so this article is coming out, you know, a couple years after they first start giving a shit, mm-hmm. I guess, or pretending to give a shit, whatever you want to say. Um, so the article is really interesting and what I found interesting is that there's not a lot of current information about animal cruelty in the Iditarod. I found a lot of stuff on like the PETA website and, you know, it's helpful to see that there are people like trying to be like, do not let the Iditarod race continue. Mm -hmm. We're trying to stop the Iditarod race, but you know, PETA can sensationalize things sometimes. So it's hard to find like true journalistic efforts about, you know, is there animal cruelty in Iditarod? Mm -hmm. Um, And who knows why? Maybe they just have a good PR team. But this is, like, one of the only articles I could find that talked about exclusively, like, the animal cruelty in the race. Anyway, so let's just get to it. So, as of 1995, animal rights activists claimed that at least 114 dogs have died during the first three decades of the race. That's a lot of dogs. Mm -hmm. What once took 20 days uh, in the early years, 20 plus days in the early years of the race, uh, now takes at least almost 10 days. So, it kind of, like, you know decreased by half um but the increased speed is attributed to the enhanced nutrition of the dogs and the run rest strategy that the mushers employ uh dogs wear polar fleece booties and neoprene wrist wraps to protect their feet from the snow and cold which cause them to freeze crack and bleed so like you know you hear you see things online like during the winter especially like we live in chicago it's like if you think your feet would be cold touching the the ground your dog's feet would be cold touching the ground and like they're just wearing like little fleece booties could you imagine i don't know i don't know maybe maybe that's enough maybe it's not uh and so then the article focuses on a one musher in particular martin busser the guy who won in 1992 um and he says quote He says he likes to establish a rhythm at the start of the race and to travel an average of 10 to 14 miles an hour as long as weather and trail conditions permit. At at that pace, the dogs, which consume as many as 10,000 to 11,000 calories a day, 65% of them from fat, and whose top speed is above 20 miles an hour, are always within their aerobic capacity. Busser runs his dogs for four to five hours and then stops for an equal period so that they can so that the actual race is only for half of the total time spent on the trail. So they're only like, so if they run for, if it takes them 10 days to complete the race, they've actually only run for five days of that 10 mm-hmm. with the amount of time that they spend resting versus running. Okay. Rest periods include stops mandated by race organizers. One of 24 hours. You absolutely have to stop for 24 hours. You can do this at any point on the trail, mm-hmm. um, which can be taken at any point in the race. One of eight hours on the Yukon and one of eight hours at White Mountain, 77 miles from the finish. When it is time to officially stop on the trail, Busser says, quote, he needs at least three hours to water f- and feed his dogs, tend to their feet and bed them down on straw, leaving him an hour or two of rest during most of his breaks. So like all of the rest periods that they take are usually uh, used to spend tending to the dogs. Um, and then 
they get to rest for like an hour before they get back on the trail. And then the musher only rests or sleeps when he's actually on the dog sled, Mm -hmm. which I found kind of interesting. Um, And there's so many cute little pictures of the dogs like being bedded down on straw. I know. It's really cute. I was thinking, like, at night, do they all sleep in like one big like puddle together to keep warm? Um, and mushers constantly monitor their dogs on the trail. When an animal comes up lame on the trail, the musher carries it on their sled, and as many as four can ride for a short distance on the sled to the nearest checkpoint. Uh, so despite measures to try and protect the dog, between 1990 and 1995, 21 dogs died on the trail. Mm. The causes are varied. Moose attack, broken necks, collisions with snowmobiles. <sighs> Heart failure, an exploded liver, and a condition called exertional myopathy. Dozens of other dogs have dropped out owing to sore feet, sprains, fractures, and exhaustion. So the biggest problem is the exertional myopathy. That is one of those conditions where you exercise so hard for so long for like an extended period of time that your essentially your muscles just start breaking down. Mm -hmm. And that's like one of the main causes of death on the trail for the dogs is they're just being Pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until they die. Mm -hmm. Uh, For years, the Iditarod Trail Committee did little to address this issue. Here's a quote from that Atlantic article. Quote, in the eyes of some old time mushers living in Alaska's backcountry, the dogs were expendable beasts of burden and critics were thought of as interfering outlanders from the lower 48. The old timers welcomed the growing popularity and profitability of their race, but resented the accompanying public scrutiny and demands for greater professionalism, end quote. Uh, but with animal rights activism on the rise and journalism regarding uh, reporting on the deaths of the dogs and the conditions out on the trail, the race has started losing sponsorship and was often dropped from screening on major networks. Like in the mid 90s, ABC was like, we're not screening the Iditarod anymore because mm-hmm. this is the dogs are dying out on the trails. You guys are not doing anything. Um, and there are instances of the Iditarod Trail Committee's kind of stepping in and trying to protect dogs. There's like an instance, like in 2007, uh, they found out that like one of the mushers was abusing the dogs out on the trail. Like not only are the conditions harsh, mm-hmm. but sometimes the people controlling the sleds are also abusing the dogs on the trail, like trying to like, you know, like whipping them, like trying to get them to go faster, all those types of things. Mm-hmm. And these people will get suspended. They'll be like, oh, you can be, you're uh, suspended for three years and then they can come back. And it's like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but still uh, in 2017, Wells Fargo announced that they would no longer sponsor the race. In 2021, Exxon announced it would pull its financial support after um the 2021 event and there was dogs that died there and PETA had successfully gotten the following brands to remove support of sponsorship from the race since the 90s coca-cola costco jack daniels maxwell house nestle panasonic pizza hut rite aid safeway and state farm and um let's see let's see no that's it and so i think like i don't know Hmm. i don't know yeah uh it's hard to say because it's like well Anything I say is so hypocritical because I eat meat. So who am I to say, yeah. like, oh, these dogs are being, like, you know, tortured or whatever when I literally pay an industry that, like, kills animals on the regular. But it's, like, because they're right. dogs, we hold them to a different right standard. And also it's, like, this idea of, well, this is purely for human entertainment. At least food serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like, you know, a, a food is a necessity. Not necessarily that meat is a necessity, but. Um. Right. And it's like, 
but it's also keeping like a certain culture, you know, it gets hard when it's like, okay, this is a culture, but I also feel like, you know, I'm sure dogs, like dog sledding was used in Alaska back in the day by the native population. I'm sure they were much more respectful to the dogs than what like this has turned into, you know, this is more just like pushing the dogs as much as they could go. And I'm sure like these dogs in a way like love doing this, you know, there's dogs that like live, huskies like love being in the snow and I'm sure they Mm -hmm. love, you know, running or whatever, but I feel like Mm -hmm. it gets to a point. The problem is they can't like really tell you that much of (laughs) what they are okay with. Exactly. And like, you can liken like dog sledding to like, um, Horses pulling a carriage, mm-hmm. you know. These animals can do this in a way that is respectful to their body and their health. Mm-hmm. The problem is, like you just said, they're animals. They can't really tell you when they've reached their physical limit or like when they're like, ah, sorry, boss, I need to take like a, a fiver mm-hmm. right now. And I think um, the difference between like, just having a horse-drawn carriage that kind of pulls a horse, pulls a carriage around a a city street, you know, a couple hours a day. And like the Iditarod race is that the prize money on like, that's at stake, like $50,000. And like that will create tension in the drivers to push the animals to their absolute limit. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, if I lose one of 12 dogs just to win $50,000, big deal. There is like that like incentive there for mushers to like push the dogs to the limit and i think to the point of this is for human entertainment is where like it feels a little shady Mm -hmm. it feels like maybe there should be something else going like yeah because this is from a tradition and you want to you want to make sure that you respect the tradition you keep the tradition alive but at the end of the day it's for monetary gain yeah you know um just to say the horse the horse carriage thing is like a a big issue like is it oh yes in in new york especially i don't think they do it in chicago anymore but there's a lot of people who like want to put an end to it because Mm. one the horses shouldn't be walking on like concrete that much there's Mm -hmm. around too many Mm -hmm. cars people but they also the horse in new york like i think live underground like they don't you know (gasps) Mm. like where are they gonna go they live in the city they don't have like a ranch to go to right right um yeah but then it's like i I can't get into i mean obviously animal cruelty is horrible but then it's also like i eat meat so who am i to say but then also it's like there's so many people who are big abused like where where do we start uh yeah you're asking hard-hitting questions for 857 on a friday morning i don't have the answers Um, but i think it's interesting that the iditarod like i've never seen it on television yeah you can stream it online and i'm sure there are some channels that will stream the editor up but you're not going to see it on like the main abc channel or the main espn channel you know you might have to go to like one of their like sub channels to see it or something um but because there's a lot of criticism and the fact that i couldn't really find any recent articles about animal cruelty on editorad is alarming and it's like are they taking them down yeah, yeah i think that's it's exactly. like the money incentive is probably like i feel like they could have the editorad as just being like the same reason I mean, yes, you can win money if you win a marathon, but a lot of people just run it just to do it. Right. You know, right. although I wonder, like, how many people run or do that I did around a year? 
it's like 50 to 60 competitors. There's usually like a thousand plus dogs. Okay. But it's 50 people. So like, I feel like if you're in it, you really think that you have a chance as opposed to like marathon yeah. where it's like hundreds of like people run the marathon right. knowing that they're not going to win. Right. And if this was more of like a cultural like celebration, then maybe more people would do it and it wouldn't be as like physically taxing. But because there's like prize money on, yeah. you know, put on top of it, it, it just... They makes should. it feel a little bit dirtier. In the same way that I don't really like horse races, like, yeah, I don't like, like Kentucky horse Derby and stuff either. like that. It's just like... They should offer prize money for whoever has the healthiest dogs by the end of the race. <laughs> the help, healthiest and happiest yeah. pups. Yeah, I agree. There you go. Problem solved. Problem solved. Why they don't ask us these things, I don't know. Mm. Well, because we're not in Mensa, but maybe uh, <laughs> once we apply and get in. And then we'll write a letter to our editor. I'd be like, we're actually Mensa members. We're Mensa members. uh... (laughs) Well, cool. Well, that's it. That's it. And that's all, folks. Very cerebral today. Yet again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, I said um at the same time. Oh, my God. Uh, If you guys are in Mensa, if you maybe you've been, maybe you're, what if, I'm I'm sure, I wouldn't be that surprised if some of our listeners are in Mensa. There probably is an overlap between, like, the Crossroad community oh, and Mensa members. And I'm sure that there also, are Mensa chapters that are, like, totally fine and not yeah. creepy and weird. But yeah. let us know what yeah. your experience has been. Yeah. I know that a lot of the constructors are in Learned League. I think that's what it's called, mm-hmm. which is, like, an invite-only, like, trivia league. Oh. And you have to, like, know someone to get in. But it, it it gives me Mensa vibes. Sorry if you're in Learned League as well. But we would love to know more. Or send us an invite. We'll join and be horrible at it. Um, but, yeah. Uh, the, crossword con- the crossword community is the perfect place to find some Learned League or Mensa members. Yeah. And I say that – I don't say that with judgment. Because I th- – there's a part of me – my ego who's like maybe you should just apply for mensa just to see if you can get it and that's so, how they get you <laughs> i i know i know it works the marketing works um anyway if you're in mensa or learnedly write to us if you have thoughts on iditarod write to us um yeah. if you have a husky in the city write to us we want to know how you survive um you can write to us on twitter at the good eve girls or instagram at the good evening girls or tiktok at the good eve girls come on down we'll say hi and uh And until next time, listeners, please keep curious, as always. And we'll be here, same time, same place, next week. Yep. In theory. Yep. (laughs) In theory. All right. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.